very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. To listen to part two of tonight's interview and all of our material going back to 2008, don't miss out and subscribe. It's very simple. All you have to do is click on the subscribe button of our website at veritasradio.com and you'll receive your login immediately. And have you listened to Sanitas Radio yet? Take a look at all the shows we've done so far and all the upcoming guests. You have no idea what these shows can do for you and your loved ones. You will never hear what they have to say in the mainstream media. I guarantee it. Remember, your greatest wealth is your health. Check it out at sanitasradio.com And for MMS or our futuristic metal-cased USB drives with all our seasons and bonus material, go to the Veritas store. To get in touch with us, for member support, media inquiries, suggestions, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com and tonight, ladies and gentlemen, our special guest is someone who has investigated just about every possible aspect of the paranormal, the occult, all the mysteries of the world. I'm referring to Brad Steiger. He's a prolific author of 170 books with over 17 million copies in print. His first published article on The Unexplained appeared in 1956, and he has now written more than 2,000 articles with paranormal themes. From 1970 to 73, his weekly newspaper column, The Strange World of Brad Steiger, was carried domestically in over 80 newspapers on overseas, from Bombay to Tokyo. His latest book, co-authored with his wife, Sherry, is titled Real Encounters, Different Dimensions, and Other Worldly Beings. And to me, it is a privilege and an honor to finally welcome Mr. Brad Steiger to Veritas. Hello, Mr. Steiger, and welcome. Hello, Mel. I'm very pleased to be with you tonight. Veritas. Why wouldn't any writer want to be on a program called Veritas? Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, from day one of creating this radio program, the name Brad Steiger was always mentioned. And it has taken me over five years to finally get the opportunity, the, the privilege to, to have you on. And let me just mention what I said to you offline. Many of our listeners know the story, but years ago I was contacted by a, an estate sale. And they knew me as somebody who was into all these topics. And apparently it was a, an elderly couple who had collected uh, newspaper clippings, hundreds of books, all the way from the 50s until probably the late 80s. So I bought them all. So right now I have 14 mm. of your books right here, including the first one, Strangers from the Skies, and of course your most recent one. Well, that's great. That's great. 
It's making me blush long distance here. Well, I'm really interested in, in knowing how you got to where you are now. Let, let's start with that for those who don't know. Mm, uh, by how you mean what, man? Well, how I got interested? Yes, I know you were a teacher at one point in the 60s. And yeah. I, I know you also had your, your paranormal experiences, which I like to also delve into. At 11 years old, you had a near-death experience. So let's take it all the right. way back right. to the earliest possible. All right. Well, I was born in a haunted house. And it was the old stagecoach stop. And according to local legend, that's where the James gang, Jesse James and Frank and the younger brothers, stopped when they were up on the Northfield, Minnesota raid, which was glorified in a movie some years ago. So we had the continuing manifestation of, <laughs> as I joke, Mel, some people were still waiting for the stage <laughs> because we would see people walking around in period costume, which I won't say as a child, I recognize that with period costume, but I recognize them as being unusually dressed from what uh, other adults were at that time. So my sister and I say that we became insomniacs because of the activity that was going on in our bedrooms at night, like people walking through. And, and then there was that eerie feeling. Most people, of course, it was like watching a movie. They didn't pay any attention to us. Now, we couldn't help paying attention to them, but every once in a while, someone would stop and look at us. And that's the eerie feeling, you know, because we realize there's some kind of connection there. And I didn't realize it so much as a child, but I realize it more now that, you know, we probably had a variety of entities and, and spirits and, and psychic residue that, you know, were just somehow impressed in the environment. So that was my beginning. And it, it, it in a sense, served me well because I was never really frightened. I never felt I was going to be harmed. And that kind of, uh, what shall we say, it, it set a pattern that when I went out and began professionally, and I say that we never charged anything for investigating uh, ghost phenomena in anyone's home, but when I did it, uh, you know, I'd write about it. So therefore, it's, I'm calling it professionally. I did gain a living from the books, of course. But it, it, I felt that it was all psychic residue. Somehow, emotions are impressed in the environment. And someone of the proper or like affinity activates them. And when we went to very houses in the beginning, we found that it was a squirrel in the attic or the plumbing. And then when we actually witnessed phenomena, it was of the psychic residue part. We could no more in, interact with them than we could the, the beings on a television set. We just watched them. But then began to encounter phenomena that could push you, might tug at your clothes, might even tug at your hair, and that this was something, well, that's more than psychic residue. And then I found out that you could also anger, 
you could annoy, you could make whatever it was, this energy, actually come after you. Actually, you could actually offend it. You could anger it and be pushed and be lifted. Then I had to start revising. <laughs> I, I realized that there just cannot be dogma in this field. There cannot be dogma in researching UFOs, researching ghosts, researching any type of psychic phenomena. It's obviously, and you make a long list of what it could be, and you probably have to go right down the list and check it can be all of the above, that kind of thing. It's a, whatever this phenomena is, we do interact with it, and it's very much a part of our entire universe. It's a part of who we are. We're a part of it. We are a part of this phenomena. And that was, you know, the beginning. And you mentioned the near-death experience at age 11. That, of course, was very profound for me. I, I was a very pious young lad. <laughs> and everyone assumed I was going into the ministry. And for a time, you know, I, I kind of agreed with that. But after the near-death experience, I saw that although I think it was very important for people to have a faith, it's important for people to have something that they can follow and that gives us uh, a code of conduct and morality. But I saw that as far as denomination, it really made no difference. I mean, we are all one. Those of us who recognize we have spirit probably conduct our lives in a different way. But to have that experience where you're, you're going into the universe. Now, some people mention the tunnel. Some people mention the light. I certainly saw the light. And because I was uh, brought up an evangelical Christian, I assumed that I would see Jesus, if not Jesus, an angel, well, I saw neither one. What I saw, and I, I cannot describe it, and I might sound a little pompous and arrogant for a moment, but you have to listen to what I'm saying and bear with me. I saw instead a series of geometric designs. And whenever I had a question, whenever I thought, I don't want to die, or I don't want to leave my mom, my dad, my friends, and I would see geometric designs that would answer my question. I saw, you know, like the building blocks of the universe, mm -hmm. and then I was shown things and told things, and this is where I'm going to sound pompous, and I don't mean it. I knew for a split second in that area of multidimensionality, I saw everything. I saw the answer to everything. Now, I can't repeat it, I can't tell you everything I saw. I just know and I have known that I was one of those who at least got a glimpse. I can't describe it. I can't say, well, tell me the answer to everything. What's the meaning of life? Just for that infinitesimal moment in this dimension, I was shown, and let me put it this way, that there's a purpose to everything. There's a meaning to everything. Each one of us is important in his or her own way. And most importantly, and I'll repeat myself, I saw that there was a purpose to all of this. I saw that it was possible to have a mission in life. 
And I think those people who have a sense of mission from an early age, and I include myself, are very fortunate. Because whatever strife and tragedy and miserable thing that happens to you, you say, this too shall pass. I am on a mission. I have a purpose. And that has been the power, if I have power, that enters me when I write. Now, Sherry has had the same experiences. She's had three near-death experiences. One was a shark attack in which she was rescued by dolphins. How's that doing in your memory bank? And she had that same sense of mission. Now, she became the very sought-after model. It was the result of a national search for the Marble Girl to go with the Marble Man. Yeah. And she was selected out of all the models in, in, in the universe, so to speak. But she turned it down because she doesn't smoke. And she didn't believe that she should do anything. And she's turned down other parts and other roles. The Excedrin PM girl. She was supposed to be that next. <laughs> and, the Mar- and the Marlboro Man. Mission. The Marlboro Man just passed yeah. away a few days ago from lung cancer, by the way. Yes, yes, yes. We commented on that and we saw it, Mel. But the point I'm making is when you have a mission, as she's done, she's turned all that down. And after Valentino, when I wrote Valentino, which was made into the movie with Rudolf Nureyev as Valentino, oh boy, we want you to, you know, be the next herald. We want you to be, you know, have the big busting bestsellers and so forth, writing, you know, the sexy bestseller. And I said, no. And everyone looked at me askance. I said, I'm writing about the paranormal. (laughs) <laughs> My agent, you know, just about had a, a conniption when, yeah. when I uttered that in a board meeting. But all those things, you know, when you have a sense of mission, you just have to do it. You have to be it. It's, it's, it's a compulsion. It's an obsession. It's a mission. And that explains the now 181 books that I've authored or co-authored. Wow. You know, uh, why is it that people like you, your wife some of our listeners, and even I, we go through this near-death experience early in life, and it's almost as if there's a mission that, that opens up. Was that was that the, the experience that ignited you, the one that really lit your yes, fire? As, as I say. Um, now, the, an interesting thing is, and I've seen it in print, that uh, I turned my back on the church, I turned my back on Lutheranism and so forth. Now, that was hardly the truth, because I went to a Lutheran school, a Lutheran college. I taught at a Lutheran college. It's just that I saw the strictures that different denominations, whether you're Roman Catholic or any one of the various uh, Christian denominations, if you're Jewish or whatever, in terms of the great now, the great everlasting. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So that's been misinterpreted is that I turned my back on Lutheranism and so forth. No, if anything, I was even more intensified. And I agreed with all the um, elderly ladies in our church that I was going to be a Lutheran pastor. But as I progressed, I, I was, you see, enthusiastic because I can now tell from the pulpit. I can be up in the pulpit and I can tell them, hey, all the promises you've heard, all the promises you've been told since Sunday school, I, 
I was there. I was on that other side. I saw the beauty of it because I was taken after I saw all those geometric designs. I went to a beautiful valley, just just an ideal, which I realized was a 11-year-old. That was my what an 11-year-old would probably see mm-hmm. as his heaven. It was a beautiful valley. There was a little uh, carnival going on. There was a popcorn stand. I mean, this was an 11-year-old's idea of heaven. And I realized that it can be different for everyone. But now I can preach from the pulpit the truth of this. And then I discovered that maybe the church didn't want a preacher who would be preaching that kind of doctrine that it doesn't matter, you leave a good life, and that's all it is. I mean, because after all, for the structured church, there's the church to support, there's heating bills, there's missionaries to support in Madagascar, whatever. And I realized that the church is has to be a business, it has to be structured, and that just wasn't for me. So my my church has become my writing my books. Now, Sherry uh, was actually on staff at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, and she made she is an ordained minister, but she made the choice too, you know, and that's when she left and you know was offered the Marlboro Girl yeah. you know, <laughs> instead of the preacher woman. But she still has that desire, you know, and and we don't want to be preachers; we just want to be examiners. We want to be explorers, and we invite our readers to explore with us. We are not dogmatic. We simply present and invite people to explore with us. And and I think, and I don't mean to offend anybody who's religious, I was reared Roman Catholic for many, many years. And what uh, brought me here was that I could never get the answers that I wanted. It was always, read the book, the answers are right there. And if they're not there, maybe God intended it to be that way, and I was not satisfied. But not being dogmatic, that's so important because you're basically letting people know, do your own research, follow your own experiences, follow your own mission, which is exactly what seems to have happened with you and Sherry. Mm-hmm. Now, let me make an aside here. Um, I was a journalist. I taught journalism in both high school and in college. And majored, you know, in that field when I was an undergraduate, did my graduate work and so forth in psychology and journalism. And when I began to write books, I wrote the same way I wrote articles. It's just the facts, just the facts. You don't take a side. So my earlier books, you know, presented like a um, doctoral thesis, you know, that the particular experiences. Then people began to ask, well, what about you? So I didn't start right off saying I had a near-death experience when I was 11. I grew up in a house with manifestations that lasted for years. When I was coming home from college, I would still experience, like I said, Mel, it was a stagecoach stop. So about once a week, you would hear at night the sound of phantom coach and horses. Now, as may sound strange, I know what that sounds like, because I grew up when we were still farming with horses. 
we got tractors when I was a little older, but we all we had. So I was familiar with a, a wagon or whatever being dragged being on the horse's back. So we would hear this sound coming down our lane and, and move in front of the house where, you know, of course, that would have been the stagecoach stop at that time. So I didn't include any of those things in my early books. I just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Then people began to say, well, you know, you must have experienced. Let us know something about you. Now, we, in this particular book, Real Encounters, we really revealed many of our own experiences. And people are responding very well to it. But but I still think we were right not to do that immediately, to develop kind of a following, if you will, or a fan base, if you will. And now we can say, well, we've had these experiences. We know exactly right. Because one thing we say is that anyone who writes to us, we know and we respect their, whatever their experience was, because we know that whether they received uh, and, and think they saw or believe they saw or know they saw an alien, a ghost, an angel, an elf, or a monster, they've never forgotten the experience. Their lives have never been the same. Their concept of reality has been forever expanded. Now, many people, many people consider this encounter, this real encounter, as a life-altering experience, an illumination, an epiphany. And whether the occurrence happened to them when they were 11 years old or whether it just happened last week, they remember it as clearly as if no time has elapsed. The experience remains with them in an eternal now. I can see, I can see those geometric designs as clearly as when I was in that other dimension when I was 11. It never leaves you. The ghosts that you see. What, what is an alien? Was it an elf? What was it? You see it. You know. And it has changed your concept of reality forever. Do you think that the NDE may have opened up a new reality that made you more receptive to these topics? Exactly. They... I, I sometimes prefer to call them, but people have to know, you know, what basis I'm, I'm speaking <laughs> from, an activating incident, an activating experience, an encounter that activated something within them. And it seems that when you're activated, the switch is turned on and you can never mm. turn it off. Have you ever tried to turn never. the switch off? Never. I'm sorry, I think you blipped out there. You asked another question. No, that was the question. I mean, when, yeah. when you're activated, the switch turn on and you can never turn it off again. Never, never. It's always there. So you should accept it. You shouldn't feel you're going insane. You shouldn't feel as though this is a terrible thing that seized you somehow. Accept it for what it is, an activating incident leading you to even higher and greater truths. Now. How did you go from teacher, high school, university, to doing this full-time? Well, I'm asked that by people who want to do that you know, all the time. And it's, uh, I taught creative writing, which is kind of a confession of sham, because 
Uh, some people I taught. Uh, I could still correspond with some of my students. Uh, one science fiction author, David Drake, I think is trying to write as many books as I have. Uh, John Karanen, he's a professor at the East Coast College, and he's writing mysteries now. And a few years ago, at the ABA, the American Booksellers Association, I was autographing two tables away from a former student of mine. Now, if that doesn't give you goose pimples, I don't know. As a teacher, as a teacher, if that doesn't give you goose pimples, I, I don't know what will. So many of them have, have followed the old teacher's uh, footsteps and examples, but how you do it. Now, it's, it's so much, whether it's acting, whether it's writing, singing, dancing, it's that indefinable moment you get a break and you recognize it as a break and you better be prepared and you better be able to follow through. Mine came after writing innumerable articles and newspaper columns uh, when I was contacted by a gentleman. He said he had Rudolph Valentino's The Great Lover's uh, scrapbooks and had so much of his private material because in the 20s, he was the leader of the Rudolph Valentino fan club. Hmm. Would I be interested in doing a book on Rudolph Valentino? Now, this was interesting because even though I come from a little tiny town in Iowa, my aunt, uh, a singer and dancer, in the 20s, left that little tiny town, and she went to Broadway, and she performed on Broadway, and she traveled on Broadway. She was actually at Valentino's funeral. So I called my aunt, and I asked if she had lots of anecdotes and so forth. And then I contacted an agent who had just been, I was writing mystery stories. You know, Alfred Hitchcock, The Saint, um, they they had a magazine, and then they take an option if they bought any of your stories. So I was writing short stories, and I had an agent because a well-known mystery writer uh, looked at my stuff and, and got me connected with his agent. But at that point, you know, I was just, just the short stories and so forth. Then when I said I had this material, wham. So I came to New York. They put me up in a hotel, uh, the Iroquois, right next to the famous Algonquin. <laughs> but it wasn't the Algonquin, it was the Iroquois. Uh, with, you know, the kitchen and so forth. And that's when I began meeting people, the people I had been writing to and had been my heroes for since I was a teenager. So the contact came from that book, from a biography. Now, for a small publisher, I'd written a biography of Greta Garbo, and and uh, I'd put together some collections of short stories, but it was a very small publisher, and nothing much happened. But now I had McFadden Bartell, which at that time was one of the big publishers. They connected with CBS to do uh, advertisements, all summer advertising the story of The Great Lover. But while I was there... I began to meet different editors, and my agent would say, oh, Brad knows all about dreams, he knows about ghosts, he knows about... Well, at that time, 
there was just a small interest in the paranormal. But I met some editors who were interested in the field. So I went out to finish the book of The Great Lover. I came home with five contracts for books from five different publishers. Now that is something I couldn't expect anyone else to replicate. This was my break. This is when people say, well, you must have had connections. And I would say, yes, yes, I did. My uncle sold pioneer seed corn. And you may not know it, but all the big publishers and editors from New York, they come to this little town in Iowa and they say, do you know anything about pioneer seed corn? And I say, yes, I do. And they say, well, we want you to write a book. In other words, I was being facetious yeah. because I had no connections. I'm a, I come, I'm a farm boy. The biggest town near me was a town of 476 people. So what connections? No, you have to work. You have to have that mission. You have to believe in yourself. Now, I was given the pot of gold. Now, eventually, the the movie or the book was bought by uh, the British uh, producer and was made into a movie with Rudolf Nureyev. It didn't do any greatness, but the book was published all over. Uh, Spain published it as a hardcover. Italy published it as a hardcover uh, and all through Europe. So that was my break. Now, that's when everyone said, well, you're going to be the next Harold Robbins, because I admit there are some scenes in Valentino that are a little risque, that are a little earthy, uh, following his life and his sexual peccadilloes. So everyone said, Harold Robbins, you're going to be the next, you're going to write the carpetbaggers, you're going to write the sequence, and, and I said, no, 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 because, you know, there are enough people writing about the libido. I want to write about the spirit. I want to write about the soul. Now, some of the editors at that cocktail party looked at me, you know, as if I, I had spilled something sour on the, you know, that I was out of my mind. But some listened. They said, well, we agree with Brad. We think there is an audience. There are seekers out there. So enough people believed in me, and that's how it all came together. And even your, your NDE happened a month after Roswell, didn't it? Ah, yes, 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 yes. And I've always wondered if there was a connection, because when, when Roswell happened, uh, 1947, when we saw the disc skipping across the mountains in Washington State, when we... When we, all these things were happening, like I say, 11 years old, I was thrilled. I was totally thrilled because they're here. They are here. They've come. Well, you know, I've since developed another perspective that maybe they haven't come from outer space, but they've activated us. We've had a, a global activating incident to tell us that there is an intelligence that has taken an interest in us, an intelligence that has been with us since before we stood upright as a species, and it's dragging us into the future, and we have to be cautious and understand exactly what our next moves are going to be. And this is a powerful question. In all your decades of research, I'm willing to bet you have tried to find the answers to the primordial 
questions. Who are we really? Why are we here? What is our purpose and where are we going? Have you found the answers? Mel, I have said that at the beginning of a number of my books, and you probably remember seeing them since you yeah. you have fourteen or some of my books. And this is this is what it's all about. Uh, whether it's worlds before our own or or the present book, real encounters, that's what Sherry and I are devoted to. Who are we really? What is our purpose? Why are we here? And are we alone? Now, I will have to say that I have, to my satisfaction, found some of those answers, which I think in the next book that we are working, in Real Encounters, I think we lay a lot of the format in a lot of where we're going in the the next books. And we're already, the, the response to this book Real encounters. Never. I mean, this is so gratifying because never have we received such serious interest from professors and physicists and doctors with three PhDs and so forth. We touched a psychic nerve with this because what we said is, you know, as I just kind of said, throughout history, some external intelligence has interacted with us in an effort to either learn more about us or to communicate certain basic truths. So whether we call them angels, aliens, spirit guides, demons, gods, or goddesses, they present themselves in a physical form that is acceptable to the individual percipient. The individual having the encounter sees what he is more likely to accept. Now this, whether it was an angel, whether it's an alien, it's a multidimensional intelligence that we, as you know from reading the book, we say we are simply calling the other, the other, the other that's somehow, somehow it's just a frequency away in our unconscious or subconscious, whichever you prefer, the so-called unconscious, the group collective unconscious, is, we feel, nothing but a subliminal doorway to that eternal domain in which this higher self, this intelligence, the other, exists. So we're dealing with multidimensionality. We're dealing with probably... uh, and, and this is where it gets really tricky. Uh, so many of the uh, uh, scholars who have written this are, are um, physicists who are into quantum mechanics. And, and it makes a little more sense to them because they they realize there can, or at least they theorize, excuse me, that you know we can have a multiplicity of dimensions. In other words, where you when you are sitting eating breakfast tomorrow, Another you in another dimension could be um, playing football. That they accept that there can be this kind of multidimensionality. And that the messages that we're getting now from the other are always relevant to the kind context, the time context of the human observers. So, you know, in ages past, we were more likely to see angels. So now the angels 
in the guise of the other. After 1947, they started dressing in spacesuits, didn't they? We had another paradigm. We were being introduced to another paradigm that said space travel is possible or the perception of space travel. Now, as far as life on other worlds, I mean, good grief. You know, the Greek philosophers were arguing about are there life on other planets. So, I mean, this is nothing new. But the idea that one can traverse those enormous stretches of space, somehow not travel through space, but somehow they've learned to avoid space. But again, recognize and respecting all those who say that these entities come from other worlds, we say, no, it's other dimensions. It's other dimensions that make them perceivable. And we're only, you know, just a little frequency away from that other dimension. I remember my conversation with uh, Edgar Mitchell a few years ago. He said that we need mm -hmm. we needed to find a plan B. We need to find another planet in case we ever needed to preserve humanity. But I sometimes pondered this, and I'm not saying we shouldn't explore other worlds. I think we should. But if we don't really know who we really are and what our purpose is, uh. perhaps that information is being hidden from us. And look at how we treat this planet. Shouldn't we learn our true origins first and get our affairs in order here and, and learn what our responsibility is, not only here, but elsewhere. Amen, Mel. And as you know, I've, I've said that, and we've said that in a number of books. We have to know who we are, and we have to recognize our responsibility to the Earth Mother before we are so presumptuous to think we can go muck it up on some other planet. Yeah. Absolutely. And how do you how do you address this issue in the 21st century? Well, that's what uh, that's one of our tasks. That's one of our missions. It's one of our, you know, like in worlds before our own and, and other thing. Uh, I'm, I'm in contact with uh, scientists, archaeologists, those who are forward, who say, no, you're moving too fast. Uh, you're presenting too much because archaeologists will tell us, you know, some of the things that we we don't want that out yet, yeah. and you have to be careful because uh, maybe it suggests racism. I mean, all those things come up. Uh, this is a delicate balancing act, as I, I'm very certain from talking to you, Mel. I know you respect it, how delicate it is and how you can't blow it. I mean, now that we have the attention of of individuals, we have to recognize that it is a, a delicate mission here. So people right now, I've never known people to be so um, mean-tempered and mean-spirited and, and the attacks on one another. Uh, somehow when I was uh, back in junior high school, I had this fantasy that by the year 2000, it would be the new paradise. It would be a wonderful <laughs> world. Peace, love, awareness, understanding. No, I'm, I'm afraid, you know, it, it's been a disappointment that way. Uh, but there are a lot of people, you know, who are tuning in, who are recognizing their mission. The whole concept of star people, which initiated in and first gods of Aquarius, and then wrote the book. That's been so misinterpreted, you know, that I was writing about um, 
aliens living among us, and and it's really people have spirited from that. There are star people churches in other countries and so forth. And Sherry and I want nothing to do with that. This is a state of mind that you're a helper, that your mission on life is to be a helper to our brothers and sisters. Not that you're special, not that you've come here like Superman from another world, uh, because we don't see too many Superman right now. We see people who are exploiting and just doing same old, same old. So those of us who are tuning in and are praying and meditating and truly seeking uh, proper guidance, you know, we have to stand firm. We have to stand fast that we don't get sucked into so many of the uh, illusions and temptations of the day. I sometimes wonder if we, because of our behavior, because the way we treat the planet and each other, that we are here almost like Australia used to be, a prison colony. In 1984, (laughs) you wrote a captive planet. Are we a captive planet? And if so, why do you think that is? Mm. Um, obviously my thought I hope evolves at that time I was uh, going through kind of a pessimistic phase looking around me and just feeling so depressed with what I saw was was an exploitation of and a misunderstanding and and it seemed like uh, everyone and his brother was you know writing a book about flying saucers and and that's fine you know that there are people expressing their point of view but so many people were were personalizing in terms of their own life and they felt they were channeling they were getting messages from so forth and from Munka Mars and you know, uh, whatever. And and that was one of the things, you know, that began saying, hey, wait, no. Because I came to the field of UFO research from the field of psychic phenomena, psychical research. And I spent many, many hours sitting in uh, seance chambers, seance parlors, whatever you want to call them, discovered some individuals of extraordinary ability who, I mean, they, they really had it. They, they really were mediums. They really were psychics. And then so many that were exploiting and absolutely no proof. But, you know, I was out walking and, and the UFO landed and it took me to, um, whatever, Lizardville or whatever. And, um, there I met this teacher and now we channel and so forth. And it was the same thing that the mediums had been telling me. Be kind to your planet. Be kind to each other. Uh, there's a, a great period of evolution coming. Be ready for that period of evolution. Well, I kind of definitely believe that. And I think uh, from reading uh, New Scientists and other science magazines, uh, many scientists are saying evolution isn't over yet for the human race. We are still evolving, and I believe that. And probably people unconsciously tune in on that. But I just saw the same information, the same messages that I was seeing in the seance chamber. So then I thought, well, this this is really nothing new. See, at that time when I wrote that, I was still saying, you know, they're here, they're coming. And I was beginning to kind of sour on that and say, let's be realistic. 
they've been with us forever. This this intelligence, whatever it is. And, and I look at the abduction phenomena, and I have some old old books on fairy faith, and it's the it's the identical program where um, you know uh, Eric goes walking to town and and uh, he sees these little creatures dancing around and he joins them and then he goes back on his mission to town to get groceries and everyone says Eric Eric where have you been gone you've been gone for a year and he says I was just dancing with those wee folk. No, he was gone. What was he doing? And then they, the fairies have this fascination with our children, with our babies, the changeling, where they substitute and they, and they capture men and women, human men and women, and, and use them for sexual purposes. I mean, this is a tradition of hundreds of years ago. And yet suddenly people are saying, this is just happening now. So all of the... the phenomena which we associate or all of the incredible breakthroughs we associate with the UFO we see are centuries old. These are patterns that have been impressed upon our evolution firmly decades, epochs ago. Well, we see it in a lot of paintings. They seem to be out of place in time and space hundreds of years ago. We see the the, the flying disc they may have called it chariots back then, and we see that today. Still, Absolutely. it seems that there's something, I don't know if it's part of academia, and you were part of academia as well. Do you think there's something there that ridicules mugs stepping outside the box because it may be jeopardizing the history that we have been taught? And maybe we need to demythologize our history a little bit. Right, right. I had interesting experiences, of course, when I was teaching in college, because that's when strangers from the skies came out. So it was interesting. The uh, astronomer, uh, she was a magnificent lady, and uh, her husband had been an ambassador to one of the European nations, and she was a powerful woman. And she wrote a column after my book came out, just ridiculing it, and then saying, if he can t- demonstrate to me that astronomers have taken this serious, astronomers have seen this. Well, I confronted her in the hall. We happened to have a faculty meeting, and I said, read your column. You know, I think you're a woman of your word. Will you, you know, uh, take it back? <laughs> if I give? So I gave her a long list of professional and well-respected astronomers who had seen UFOs. And she was a woman of her word. She wrote her next columns, you know, saying that I had proven to her that astronomers were taking this phenomena seriously. But there was always the little joke. <laughs> there was always the little, ooh, here he comes, you know. But you have to uh, take those things with, uh, with humor. Why is it that somebody that's so entrenched in a belief that they never want to step out of that? They, they seem to be shackled to it and no matter how much evidence you provide they will continue telling you that you're just simply out of your mind well security security we all want security Uh, some of the things that sherry and i have received just in the last couple weeks and i know this is this is poor behavior on my part i shouldn't suggest anything i i shouldn't i can't really tell because it's being researched but 
as these people say, if these are taken seriously and they can be proved to the the demonstration and and, and acceptance of other people, we're just going to have to rewrite all of our history books. Truly, uh, some you know about the uh, which we when we were in Peru. Um, how many years ago? No, maybe twenty years ago. Uh, we, we saw the skulls that were very much elongated. The Paracas skulls. I said, "Well, pardon me. Yeah, the, the oh, okay. Skulls, yes. All right. You know, you know where I'm going then. Oh, sure. So the Paracas skulls, and we were asked not to take pictures, and and normally we abide. We haven't shown them any, but we we could not help, you know, taking a couple pictures, <laughs> and. Um, so we've those we, we've been aware of, you know, for over twenty years, and looking at those now, as a student of history, a passionate student of history, and a history buff, a history major, I know, of course, about you know flattening the skull and putting the boards and so forth. But these are very different. And now the release just what a week ago, the Paracas skulls have been uh, analyzed and and. Um, now science is in the game, and they're saying these are not Homo sapiens. Now that doesn't mean they're aliens, but as we see now, when I wrote Worlds Before Our Own, uh, we basically had Neanderthal and we had uh, you know Primal Man and so forth. And I said then, you know, in the next twenty years, we're going to find at least five, maybe six hominin species, and that's come true. You know, we have Devisavan uh, that has been found. Uh, we have a, a mystery. We have Devisavan who probably uh, mated with this other uh, specimen that's been found in Asia. We just have all these things happening. We have cities being uncovered. And now we've received just from one of our friends last night. He says, I'm just shaking, I'm just shaking. And there's a, a discovery of a city which someone has said it has to be proven. But they say, go back to the age of the dinosaurs. I heard that. And mummies. Yeah, and mummies inside. Now, if this just is, you know, uh, uh, demonic intelligence tormenting those of us who are researchers, then, I mean, if this is, this is you know, what we've said before, that uh, that's where I got the title, Worlds Before Our Own. Uh, I was giving a lecture in Hawaii on, you know, prehistory, and uh, a rabbi stood up in the back and he says, well, it, as it says in rabbinical text, Worlds upon worlds there were before Adam was. And I thought, that's great. That's going to be the title of my next book. And it was, you know, Worlds Before Our Own, because uh, there's evidence. So we don't have to involve outer space. Now, if you want to say in the very beginning, 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 maybe there was the seed, maybe there was the implantation, maybe there was visitation. But this could have been in prehistory time and undoubtedly was in prehistoric times. And we don't need we don't need other than evolving Homo sapiens. And and one time, you know, uh, someone told me that he felt the intelligence behind all this was evolution, that evolution was uh, an intelligence that was guiding us, making us what it wanted us to be from the beginning. You know, and speaking of all of this, I, I want to commend the late Lloyd Pye, 
And also Brian Forster, who's doing a great job down there in mm-hmm. Peru to pursue the DNA testing. And it's expensive, folks. It's right. People think, why don't you just do conduct a DNA test? <laughs> it's really <laughs> expensive. Lloyd Pye had to, really f- he had to file bankruptcy because he was putting all of what he had in order to pursue this. But you mentioned something interesting, the, the latest news, dinosaurs and man. We're always told that, you know, our history is about what, 10,000 years, but dinosaurs and man and civilized because it's a city there. Doesn't that crumble a bit the current paradigm? Yeah, they, you know, why? I, I've always wondered, can, can you really accept, I mean, maybe it's just me, but that a comet appeared in the sky and all over the world, all dinosaurs died. I mean, it's just like, oh, oh there's the sign. We got to go, boys. And everyone went. I, I've always questioned why can we not accept that some dinosaurs existed well into the arrival of, you know, Homo sapiens? Why are early legends of the dragon, which is in every culture mm-hmm. in the world, I mean, and, you know, we don't have to draw it out for people, Mel. I mean, anyone can make the the leap between a dragon, as we saw it in the fairy tales, and the dinosaurs, the pterodactyls, and, and so forth, the flying dinosaurs, if you will. So, and same way in the sea. We, we know nothing of the life in the sea yet. No matter how deep we go or how many trenches we find, we haven't begun to catalog. So again, why people who see the sea serpents, the monsters, and so forth, why not in the deep trenches, the deeper parts of the ocean, why not still surviving? We know that you know we have the um, the the uh, fish, uh, not a fish. Uh, excuse me, I I just lost it. Uh, that was found off Africa, and now they've been seen in markets in India. And this is a fish that has existed since before the dinosaurs. And it's being sold in markets now, and uh, experts recognize it, that this should have been extinct before. It goes back, and we're going back and don't we feel sometimes? Where do we get these feelings? Is it a reincarnation? Why not? I mean, not in every case. And you don't, you know, the pickup line of, gee, you know, I think you were my wife in another lifetime. You know, that that's a, a uh, that's bringing karmic vengeance on you to use that <laughs> tired old pickup line. You know, in that sense. But we we know that there are. Uh, well, okay, if you don't want to accept reincarnation, then inheritance. I mean, they're suggesting now that we do remember, you know, the old joke when I was a kid, you know, well, if a guy had a white streak of white in his head, in his hair, then we'd say, well, his mother-in-law was, his mother was frightened by lightning. <laughs> you know, it's a joke. Okay, but there are demonstrations, you know, that many memories can be inherited. Genetically, we can remember our ancestors' life and our ancestors' fears and hopes and dreams. Well, I mention this all the time. Uh, I have a, one of my businesses. I had a customer who's, who passed away some, some time ago, but he had received a heart transplant. In about, you know, a couple of years after, the mother of the child who passed away, an 18-year-old, you know, young man who 
got involved in a car accident, donated the heart. All of a sudden, he started developing tastes that he didn't have before. He liked spicy food now. All of a sudden, he was a guy who listened to country music and, and classical music. All of a sudden, started developing in his late 50s a, 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 a likeness for believe it or not, rap music. So all of a sudden he called the family and they started saying, talking about it. So cellular memory, do you think that's possible? Yes, yes. And we all know that, you know, again, it sounds to many people like, oh, this can't be, this can't happen. But we hear all the time of someone who picks up the traits of the the donor that's, who saved their lives with the transplant uh, being available. We hear these stories, and, and people are inclined to laugh. But again, if we really set ourselves back for a moment, set ourselves apart from the flow and just look at it, why, why are there not these endless possibilities? Why are they not? Because it's all part. Now, we don't have to be uh, so open, the old saying goes, that our brain falls out. We can't be that open-minded. But we should be open-minded enough to not laugh, to just take a few moments at least to consider the various theories. And as far as uh, reincarnation, uh, I've written uh, one on reincarnation and found some of the most extraordinary cases. One happened, uh, you know, I didn't have to go farther than, than a good friend of mine whose uh, son just started suddenly uh, speaking German, not exclusively, but speaking with a German accent. Now, this is just a young boy, uh, you know, like six or seven. And he then demanded maps of Europe and he talked about different campaigns and just frightened the heck out of his family. As far as they knew, he hadn't seen any World War II films. He was not exposed at this time. He wasn't in school yet. So he had to be, you know, like five, six, maybe he was in school, maybe kindergarten or whatever. But he was looking at maps and he was then getting excited and he was pointing and, and all of these things. He was gave every indication of having the memories of a German officer in World War II. And they brought in different uh, veterans and, and uh, experts. And he was, uh, he, he was dazzling them all. Now, how do you explain this? He hadn't, I mean, obviously he hadn't read any books. He hadn't seen any movies and what movies would detail different campaigns and so forth. But, you know, different people who had been in World War II, uh, this was a few years ago. Um, in fact, I guess it's been 30 years ago when, when there were a number of vets, you know, who could, could understand German and could understand what he was talking about and had even been involved in the ally side in some of the campaigns. There are story after that, you know, that I've just collected over the years. Many of them I put in books, of course, but others that I've just pondered you know, because they probably seem so fantastic. Now, I still keep in touch in uh, other lives that we did um, for Hawthorne Award books where Bill Williams, the hypnotist uh, who, from whom I learned regression techniques, he regressed a 14-year-old boy in New Hampshire 
who had claimed a life as a country boy in the Civil War. He was not in the war. He was a young, very poor farmer in a small town. Now, he had the town, he gave the mayor, he gave the piano teacher, he gave everyone. So the only thing to do was to follow the route and follow the... And we found them all. We found them all, Mel. If you're familiar with that book, I mean, it, it's it's well worth picking up. Um, how do you explain something like this? Now, okay, that was in, oh my goodness, six, 1960 maybe? Maybe even before that. And I still correspond with him. He is now a successful uh, businessman in Texas, I mean, growing up in New Hampshire. He was a New England boy, 14-year-old England boy, and we took him down to the South. We went, everyone, we, uh, the town historians verified everything, you know. So who was the uh, minister of the Methodist Church at that time? He named it, said, that's right. Who was the mayor at that time? He named it, that's right. Now, that, of course, if you're open-minded at all, now you can say, well, we got together and we isolated the small town in the south. And then, of course, he was shot by uh, Union soldiers who he claimed and said were not with the regular army, but had broken away and and were renegades. And we found that there was, you know, a gang of renegade uh, soldiers at that time in that area. So... When you run into cases like that, not just seeing a movie, uh, you know, on a clear day you can see forever and admire Barbara Streisand singing, when you actually confront these and see these and go through it with them, uh, then then it's pretty hard to say, uh, you know, this can't exist. And I wish science were to study it more. I know they call it... uh we were talking about the foreign accent, foreign accent syndrome. A lot of times there's trauma involved, an accident or, or so. Do you think this could be an unintended consequence of the accident? Maybe we're accessing a portion of our brain that carries memories that we're not supposed to tap into? Yeah, or or a connection to the collective unconscious, right? I mean, it could be mm. that. Because in some cases, you know, where we don't see that phenomenon, of course, of of speaking in in other languages with which you're not familiar, that has so many possible explanations. You know, the group mind, the collective of consciousness, can an accident allow us to access it to the extreme that we can speak another language? Some people say, well, when he was a child, uh, we had... uh, uh, Polish maid or whatever. Well, that, that doesn't cut it. I mean, it's it's people who, you know, suddenly have this ability. And I, can you call it an ability? I call it a consequence of something jarring the brain, which then allows it to tune into the collective unconscious, which would theoretically allow you to speak any of the known languages and some of the languages that are now 
uh, have been uh, disappeared because of lack of use, such as, you know, uh, tr tribes and uh, Native American tribes. I read the other day there's only one person left in this particular uh, sub-tribe, uh, and then trying to get that person to get as many words down as possible. Uh, other small bands of, of different major tribes that were speaking in a unique dialect, they've disappeared. But are they all accessible? And, and you know, how does this help the person who is now speaking uh, Mandarin Chinese uh, living in Georgia? I mean, how, how does it help that person? This is obviously, to me, a consequence and, and maybe something that will cause us to understand the group mind and what we're talking about in, in real encounters, that we have access to all these incredible things that we haven't begun to define or even discuss thoroughly. And we have to take a, a break, but when we come back, I really want to get into the are we alone question. For example, we have the Hobo Ultra Deep Field. And a lot of people don't know that they just pointed what's the equivalent of a pencil, of the, of the pencil point edge to it, and they found ten thousand galaxies. One galaxy. Okay, I'm sorry, you went out. You went out again. I'm sorry. Okay, can you hear me again? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. I was mm -hmm. just talking about the Hubble Ultra Deep Field with the question of are we alone? As a child, to me, that was the height of arrogance. If our galaxy has billions of sun, of, 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 of stars, probably trillions of planets. Why do we continue saying that there's no life outside? And also, I want to explore your experience with the shamans or shamans around the world, what you have learned so far. But tell people how to buy this excellent book that you and your right, uh, wife Sherry wrote, Real Encounters, Different Dimensions, and Otherworldly Beings, and all your other books. Yes, you can always go to our website to find information, www.bradandsherry.com, or you can go to the electronic bookstores like Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or hopefully your favorite local bookstore. Great folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with prolific author and researcher Brad Steiger. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
This is Brad Steiger, and you're listening to Veritas. 